Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 65. I'm to be back on the program. It's been a week. It's a little vacation, so now I'm back in the chair and we should have... Uh, several weeks of uh, two episodes a week. Uh, I will uh, probably take another vacation in May, but for about uh, two months, you've got me uh, with no interruptions. So uh, looking forward to being back on the on the show a couple of times a week. Remember, if you do like the podcast, please uh, share it around with your friends on social media. Uh, like my Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. I do post these on YouTube as well. Um, so please use social media as a vehicle to get the word out about the podcast. It's the only way it will happen. Also, there are some great things coming up fairly soon with my forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Uh, there's going to be some great promotional uh, opportunities there if you pre-order the book. So when that is ready to go, I will let you know with those uh, opportunities. And hopefully you get out there and pre-order that book and uh, pre-order a lot of those books because uh, we need to get the word out about that one too. And it's a great book. It's going to be uh, one that will, I think, change the narrative about Alexander Hamilton. And there is a bonus with this, something that's really exciting. Uh, Ron Paul has written the foreword to the book. So uh, it's been endorsed by Ron Paul, and uh, I hope that you enjoy it. And again, get out there and pre-order that thing. So uh, I want to talk today about Korea. And this is an important topic because looking at the news today, the headline on the Drudge Report uh, late last night was that uh, Kim Jong-un has gone out and released a video where he's blowing up an American aircraft carrier and all kinds of other things. So uh, the tension with North Korea is extremely high. The Trump administration has come out and said that um, North Korea is uh, behaving badly and uh, King Kim Jong-un is is a problem. Well, I guess we could just send Dennis Rodman over there to play some basketball again. Maybe that would solve the problem. But I think a lot of people, particularly young people, don't understand why North Korea is in the position that it's in. Why is the United States even worrying about this little dictator in North Korea, who's a bad guy? I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's uh, had his his uh, brother assassinated. He's the, tech, the tactics that they use uh, on political dissent and other things are just horrible. Uh, you know, either civil rights and human rights violations in North Korea all the time. So it's a, it's a bad situation for a lot of people. But why is the United States there? Why do we still have troops in the demilitarized zone? Uh, why is why is the United States even worrying about this uh, this communist country uh, in a remote location in Asia? Um, well, and I think for anyone that said maybe their twenties or thirties, this is a very serious question. And I remember. Because when I grew up, you know, the Korean War was something that people understood uh, or knew about because of the hit television show, MASH, which was a great show, a lot of fun. 
you know, the, the comedy there was great, but it had a very serious undertone as well, you know, anti-war undertone. And uh, this has become kind of the forgotten war of the Cold War. People still uh, pay a lot of attention to the Vietnam War, though I think that's fading, uh, because you have so many Vietnam War vets out there. Um, and so people are much more interested in that war. It's gotten a lot more uh, publicity because of uh, movies and television shows. So the Vietnam War is something that people are aware of. But the Korean War is this kind of forgotten part of the Cold War. And it was such an important war, a pivotal moment, a watershed moment, really, in American foreign policy and in American history. So I want to talk a little bit about it and explain why in the heck we're over there worrying about this little dictator in North Korea. And, you know, why is the United States on the brink, it looks like, of a nuclear war with the Koreans? And, of course, if North Korea does launch an offensive, say, against Japan— that is going to cause major problems for the United States because of our uh, our complex alliance system, because China is aligned with the Koreans, uh, because you've got uh, this web of very uh, bad, ultimately alliances that were created during the Cold War and after, and, and you know during that process, World War II, I should say, in the Cold War. Uh, and so the United States could be dragged into a major war because of North Korea. Now, when the Korean War first began in 1950, there was also that threat then as well. It didn't materialize, but uh, it did create a standard by which the United States was going to, or at least a standard in foreign policy that the United States was going to follow from that point forward. So let's talk about this involvement uh, United States involvement in Korea and where that comes from. So first and foremost, you have to understand what happened with Korea. Uh, Korea was occupied by the Japanese during World War II. And so when World War II is over, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union agreed to, just like in Germany, to jointly occupy the peninsula. Uh, the Soviets had actually pushed into Korea during the war, and uh, they were making headway. Now, of course, for the United States... Our ally during World War II against the Japanese was China. And, of course, we also had uh, interest in Korea uh, because of its prox uh, proximity to China and also Japan. So uh, the United States and the Soviet Union split the country in two. And we had this very uneasy tension between the U.S. and the Soviet forces there, just like in Germany. Uh, so in so many ways, you know, Korea was the Asian version of the situation in Germany. Though we didn't have, uh, you know, divided Berlin situation in Korea, we did have a country that was split in two. And so, of course, the Soviet Union eventually installs a puppet regime in uh, North Korea, and they back out, uh, just like the United States in, uh, installs a puppet regime in South Korea. And we back out, ultimately, uh, with, our, with our military forces. But these two areas are allowed to essentially operate on their own, and some tension begins to rise. And, of course, the Chinese uh, under Mao Zedong with uh, their uh, communist government begin to have exert some influence in North Korea as well. China has, has always been kind of the, uh, the moderating influence in North Korea. The North Korean government has been unstable. Uh, the dictators in North Korea have generally been um, much more aggressive than the Chinese would like, than the United States would like, than the world would like. So the Chinese have been this, this moderating influence. 
Uh, I still think they are, um, though uh, it seems like uh, they, they don't have as much control over uh, King Jun- Kim Jong-un as they would like. So you've got this situation, this very tense situation, and ultimately the North Koreans decide they are going to invade South Korea. And they launch an offensive which pushes the South Korean government to a little corner of the Korean peninsula by 1950. It's on the brink of falling uh, to the North Korean army and becoming entirely communist. Now, if you back up, so that was 1950. If you back up a little bit, of course, Harry Truman is president, uh, begins uh, his, his administration in 1945 when Franklin Roosevelt dies in office. And so uh, I, I talk, first, let me back up also and say, I talk a lot about this issue in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. Um, so uh, Truman is president, and he wins a very difficult uh, re-election in 1948. It looked like he was going to lose, and he wins. And one of the things that Truman was often criticized for was being too soft on communism. And so uh, he has this perception that he's not really interested in beating back the commies, that uh, you've got this international force, communist force, pushing forward to try to have world domination. And Truman's just sitting back and letting this happen. Now, the House and American Activities Committee, which was headed by Richard Nixon, has started looking for communists, probing for communists in the Truman administration. And they found one, an Alger Hiss. Now, the Alger Hiss spy trial is pretty much unknown today. Uh, But uh, Hiss was ultimately uh, brought before the Congress and found guilty of perjury, though he was never uh, found guilty of treason or espionage. Though after the Soviet Union opened their archives, when the, uh, well, I should say the Russians opened their archives after the Soviet Union fell, uh, it was shown that Hiss actually was a communist collaborator and sympathizer, and he was engaging in espionage. So the House Un-American Activities Committee was on to something. They actually found this guy who was a communist spy in the Truman administration. He was booted from the administration, uh, but not because of any ties to Soviet uh, communists. They should have been there. I mean, they, could, they found enough evidence to say that, you know, show that he was lying, but they, there was an A and a B, but no C linking everything together. So uh, Hiss was this very high-profile case. We often talk about, you know, the McCarthy uh, communist hunts in the 1950s, but this Alger Hiss situation predated that, and uh, you know McCarthyism came after that. So uh, we're seeing some of the same stuff really going on today with what's happening uh, with quote unquote Russian ties to the Trump administration, and you've got looking you know, we're out there looking for uh, you know Russian sympathizers in the Trump government and Trump administration and all over the place. Now I see the FBI is probing. Uh, quote-unquote, far-right internet sites uh, for uh, supposed collusion with the Russians and helping uh, Trump win the election. All this stuff is just going to prove to be false. But uh, it shows that what goes around comes around. We were talking about this in the 1950s, though in the 1950s, I think there was some some definite uh, attachment to the Truman administration and the Soviets. Uh, not through Harry Truman himself, but uh, definitely through some of his uh, people in his administration. So you've got this his, uh, his situation. And then uh, to show that uh, he was tough <clears throat> on communism, Harry Truman, at the insistence of his uh, one of his advisors, who later became his secretary of state, Dean Acheson, 
signs the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or signs the United States and involves the United States in NATO. Now, this was an important development because for the first time in American history, in peacetime, we have developed a complex alliance system uh, with European powers. And uh, as uh, George Kennan said, this is going to militarize the Cold War. And he was right, because NATO creates a situation where then the Soviet Union feels threatened militarily, and they create the Warsaw Pact. And so now, so now you have, essentially, in Germany, uh, between and Germany becomes the dividing line. You just draw a line straight down through Germany, East and West Germany. You have, uh, you, you have forces on the border of each, ready to attack each other should anything happen. And this is the same situation that's going on today. We still have NATO military exercises in Eastern Europe, now on the border of Russia. We've got countries that were at one time part of the Soviet Union that are now part of NATO, and that situation is, is ramping up the tensions between the United States and Russia. And this is, you know, when Trump was on the campaign trail and he said, look, what's the point of Russia? Uh, well, I'm sorry, what's the point of NATO? Uh, it's, it's an old, outdated uh, alliance system that was created during the Cold War. And what do we need it anymore for? This is a very good question. Unfortunately, Trump as president has backed off some of that stuff because I think he has too many uh, neoconservative advisors in his administration. But his foreign policy is not what he said it was going to be on the campaign trail. And that's, again, that's unfortunate because this non-interventionist foreign policy is something that the United States needs. However, uh, here we are during uh, you know, the 1940s, and Truman signs us on to NATO, and uh, people were saying this is a bad idea. But the important actor in all of this was Dean Acheson. Now, most people don't know who Dean Acheson was. This is the guy that was the mastermind of the Marshall Plan, uh, the Marshall Plan, which was uh, named after George Marshall, uh, and the point was to dump uh, billions of American dollars into Europe to try to keep these countries that had been destroyed by World War II from turning communist. And so uh, Atchison was saying, look, we got we got to spend money in Europe uh, on foreign aid, and uh, that will keep these areas away from the Soviet communist influence. So Atchison was already ramping up the Cold War, uh, at the end of World War II. And he was also the guy that was the mastermind of the Truman Doctrine, which essentially said, we are going to uh, stop communism uh, by any means necessary. We're going to contain, it's also known as the Containment Doctrine, we're going to contain communism where it already exists by any means necessary, which means military involvement for the United States ultimately. So this containment idea uh was uh, the driving force in the Truman administration. And of course, that becomes the dominant foreign policy for the United States moving forward. You can definitely place uh, the uh, containment document at, doctrine as the basis of later the domino theory, where if you know we let one country fall to communism in Southeast Asia, for example, then all, uh, all the other countries in Southeast Asia are going to become communists. So you can look at Dean Acheson in so many ways, as the mastermind of the Cold War. But he's this forgotten figure in history. Now, I know a lot of people who are diplomatic historians or uh, who are interested in the Cold War know about Dean Acheson. But the general American walking around the street doesn't know who Dean Acheson was. But here's a guy in the, in the background. Now, eventually he was Secretary of State during the Truman administration. But for years he's in the background. Here's a guy really directing American foreign policy. 
uh, and, and American foreign policy going forward. I mean, the Cold War was a defining, defining event of uh, American history from 1945 until 1991. In so many ways, the tentacles of the Cold War still felt today. We're only in the Middle East because of the Cold War. We're only having uh, these problems with Russia because of the Cold War. We're only having problems in North Korea because of the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War really was uh, the event that pushed the United States into this world police power uh, and created a situation where we have our interests, quote-unquote, in over 100 countries around the world. It was the Cold War that did all that. And here's this guy, Dean Acheson from Connecticut, who's behind all of this stuff. Now, uh, it's also Dean Acheson who wrote what's called NSC-68, which was uh, a report that called for massive increases in defense spending. Actually, the the uh, report called for a, uh, well, uh, almost a, a 400% increase in defense spending uh, and from $14 billion to $50 billion. Now, $50 billion today is like, well, $50 billion to spend that on just studying uh, the reproductive habits of you know, some mammals across the globe. But uh, in, the, in the 1960s, this was an awful lot of money. It still is an awful lot of money. But with you know, a multi-trillion dollar budget, $50 billion is a drop in the bucket. But what he wanted to do was ramp up defense spending. Now, of course, defense spending is constitutional. Uh, it is one of the charges of the federal government uh, under the Constitution is to defend the United States. So we can't look at that and say, well, this is unconstitutional. It is constitutional. But it's what we're spending money on that's so controversial. So in this NSC 68 call for more spending, you get uh, increases uh, in so-called national security. Uh, so this is where we create the CIA, for example. And, of course, the Dulles brothers are going to go out and, um, the, as Secretary of State and also head of the CIA, and they are going to ramp up what the CIA does and, of course, involvement in all kinds of uh, you know things across the globe. And so the CIA is created out of this NSC-68. Uh, you also get um, the situation we're looking at with, say, domestic surveillance. I mean, this is where all this stuff is created, NSC-68. Uh, there's no way to get around that Dean Acheson really was the mastermind of these things. So all the stuff that we are doing now was all you know, established under the guise of fighting the communists. And people were willing to buy into it. Oh, yeah, we've got these communists. Uh, we don't want these, uh, these commies lurking in the shadows. We don't want American pinkos out there uh, you know, uh, causing a shadow government, a fifth column. We've got to go out and get these people. So we're going to create uh, essentially domestic surveillance. And uh, we have the FISA courts. All the things that we talk about today, all of this goes right back to Dean Acheson and Harry Truman in the Cold War and Korea. And this, you have to understand Korea is, is in so many ways pivotal to this process. So we get this madman, King, Kim Jong-un, and it's just a byproduct of the Cold War. So Korea becomes part of this process. Uh, and after the uh, North Koreans invaded... Uh, you also had the creation, uh, of course, of the United Nations uh, after World War II and something that Truman was very much interested in. So what happens as North Korea invades, Truman will go to the United Nations and he'll say, he'll go to the Security Council and he'll say, look, we've got this communist aggression in North Korea. Uh, this is completely uh, dangerous to the stability of the world and we need to go in 
and we need to, to beat back these commies. And so the United Nations agrees to do it. This becomes a UN action in 1950, and that's the important shift in American foreign policy because as we move forward in American foreign policy, we see that the United Nations becomes the actor, and of course the United States as the military arm of the United Nations. It's basically just giving the United States cover for uh, going out and, and pursuing a very aggressive foreign policy. And this is, again, why people have been critical of the United Nations. The, the United Nations, the design of that, of course, uh, you know, replaced the defunct League of Nations, uh, which was crafted at the end of World War I. But the United Nations was designed to prevent World War III. Now, it's done that. We haven't had World War III. But, of course, the United States has been involved in all kinds of wars all over the globe because of the United Nations and the Cold War. So has it stopped war? Absolutely not. In fact, you could say uh, with the creation of the, of the United Nations and then this open-ended Cold War, this containment theory, uh, we've just created a situation where we can have perpetual war. Uh, so uh, this all goes back to Harry Truman and Dean Acheson. So now you have the United Nations saying, yeah, we need to go into Korea and we need to stop this communist aggression. Now, Truman called it a quote-unquote police action. This is the first time you hear that term, a police action. So we never have a congressional declaration of war against North Korea. But this is a police action. We're going to go in and we're going to stop communist aggression as uh, like your local cop stopping uh, you know, some domestic violence or something or stopping a robbery from taking place. Uh, this is we're just going to show up in our in our cruiser with our you know bubble lights on and then we're going to come in and arrest some people and throw them in jail and we're going to stop these bad guys from beating up the other the, the good people so we land our troops in south korea in 1950 and in short order we push back the uh, north koreans we push them out of south korea but it's the weird stuff that goes on with this uh, that you can, it's kind of a foreshadowing for what we're seeing now. So Harry Truman goes before the Congress, and he gives this very bizarre address. And I detail this in my book, Nine Presidents. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that one particular section and what this is going to do to American liberty and also what it's going to do to the executive branch. So I'm going to read this, this uh, particular part of the book um, and talk about uh, you know, what Truman said here. So, quote, Truman, however, thought it was necessary to prepare the United States for another major war. Again, this is the point of the Korean War. And he used the police action as a means of declaring another unconstitutional, quote-unquote, national emergency. That's important to understand what's going on here. The Korean War was a turning point in American presidential power, in American foreign policy. This was, uh, you know, so pivotal and moving forward with the imperial presidency. In a bizarre address, Truman declared that the United States would uphold, quote, the principles of the United Nations. Now you have to wonder, what the heck are those? We're now going to, the United States is going to uphold the principles of the United Nations? What about the U.S. Constitution? That's what the president is designed to uphold and defend, not the principles of the United Nations and advocated another round of price controls, wage controls, and production controls, along with higher taxes. So there's the key. The Cold War, the war in Korea, is going to be a way 
to use unilateral executive action to implement uh, more government control of the economy. This is exactly what we saw in World War II. You couldn't, I mean, the, the economy was booming during World War II because you couldn't spend any money on anything. So Truman was not very happy after the war that Congress was ramping down the uh, involvement of the U.S. government in the economy. So here's an opportunity to get us back in this wartime footing, and we haven't left it. That is one thing. I remember when I was an undergraduate, there was a political science professor there who was always you know, arguing, well, the United States has never left a wartime footing. And as I was a dumb undergraduate, I thought, oh, this guy's just a pinko, this guy. Uh, you know, he, but he was right. Since, the, since World War II, the United States has really never left a wartime footing. Now, his critique was in foreign policy, military. He was criticizing the military. But we haven't left it in terms of the economy either. He was exactly right. Now, he would be fine with that part of it. He's not fine with the military part. We should be looking at both ends, though, which is what no one will consistently do. The Democrats rail against the military. The Republicans rail against the, the welfare state. What we should be doing is railing against both. We've created the warfare state because of World War II. We've got one side promoting the, well, the, the war part of it. We've got the other side promoting the welfare part of it. And you put them together, we've got this monster of a, of, a, of a leviathan that cannot be tamed. And it goes right back to World War II. And then, of course, the, the Cold War and the Korean War. <clears throat> he also, as commander-in-chief, demanded that all, American, that all the American people get back to work. This was necessary, Truman said, quote, for the defense of your homes and your way of life. All of us will have to pay more taxes and do without things we like, end quote. But not to worry. Truman reassured Americans that this was not a sacrifice, but, quote, an opportunity, an opportunity to offend the best kind of life that men have ever devised on this earth. Sounds great. We just got to go to war in Korea, and we just got to have price controls and wage controls and production controls. That is, it's essential for our way of life, don't you know? Truman closed by reminding Americans that we were Quote, the leaders of the free world. The commander-in-chief was essentially directing that the now-militarized civilian population should act as such by sacrificing their money, their goods, and their freedom to defend their homes for, quote-unquote, the principles of the United Nations against non-existent North Korean bombers flying over American airspace. I mean, this is, he said this, you know, we got to worry, people, we're worried about North Korean bombers. The North Koreans don't even have electricity, really. Uh, even to this day, and we're worried about North Korean bombers. I mean, now, of course, he's selling it. This is the Soviet Union doing all this stuff. We won't stop the North Koreans. The Soviets are going to get involved, and they're going to bomb us. It's also important to note that the Soviets had only recently developed any nuclear weapons. So this is, um, you got to put that in context. But uh, we didn't have the, the tension in 1950 that we even have today with nuclear weapons. The North Koreans didn't have nuclear weapons in 1950. He followed up his address the next day with an unconstitutional proclamation declaring the quote-unquote national emergency. Now, this is important. Uh, this is where you get this shift, you know, declaring a national emergency, the president using his, uh, his office to increase American involvement in a war that we should have never gotten involved in to begin with. And, of course, that war is going to get the United States involved, more involved in Southeast Asia, you can look at the Korean War as the uh, as the beginning of our involvement in uh, French Indochina, which later became Vietnam. I mean, once we pull out of Korea in 1952, within two years, 
were back involved in Southeast in, in Asia with with uh, American advisors after the French were booted out of Vietnam. Um, and so it's important to understand where all this stuff comes from and the impact it's had on American government, American foreign policy, and the executive branch. I mean, that is the important part of this. Uh, without the Korean War, you don't have the president declaring a national emergency, the president saying we need all these economic controls, because, I mean, that's what we get. Now, of course, what happens in the Korean War? You've got Douglas MacArthur, uh, who's publicly waging a war against uh, Harry Truman uh, in, in, in the press. I mean, MacArthur wants to go all the way to Beijing. Uh, and he got into China at one point and ran into Chinese divisions. And, of course, that created a problem. But MacArthur wanted to just use nuclear weapons. He wanted to nuke Beijing. He said that option's on the table. And when he said that finally, you know, he, he basically uh, hung himself in the public because the, the American public was not behind using nuclear warfare at this point anywhere. Uh, we had seen the destructive capabilities of nuclear weapons and you know, nu- making this a nuclear war would be disastrous for mankind. And so thankfully, uh, the nuclear option has been used as a deterrent, but it hasn't happened since uh, 1945. Though, I mean, this is the threat with Kim Jong-un that he's going to use nuclear weapons somewhere. I mean, the thought is that you know, maybe he could develop a missile that could hit the west coast of the United States. But certainly he's got the capabilities to bomb Japan which, of course, if that happens, is going to get the United States involved in a war. Uh, and it's horrible. I mean, even thinking about uh, nuclear war, it's such a horrible thing uh, that anyone would even fathom doing this today is, uh, is uh, just, uh, just an awful prospect. But this is where we, this all, all this stuff comes from. So we've got Harry Truman pushing us into Korea in 1950, and we're still living in the aftermath of that because— the war actually is never settled. It's just a ceasefire, and you create this demilitarized zone, uh, and the North and the South are still pointing guns at each other across this DMZ, and the United States is still sitting in, North, in South Korea. Uh, and we're just a speed bump in this situation. If the North Koreans decided to invade South Korea, the troops that we have there would be powerless to essentially stop this invasion. They would be overrun, and the United States would have to send in more troops, more, more, spend more money, do all the things that we'd have to do to get ourselves in this major war, which could turn nuclear because the North Koreans now have nuclear weapons. So we can all point back to the Harry Truman administration and Dean Acheson. Of course, Dean Acheson was brought in uh, as an advisor during the Vietnam uh, crisis, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, this guy was so important uh, in this very disastrous expansion of American interests through the Cold War, uh, that he should be villain, one, of the, one of the top villains in, uh, in American history that nobody knows anything about. Same thing with the Dulles brothers. But, I mean, this guy should be right up there in this pantheon of people that uh, are dangerous for the United States. And we should be saying, we don't want to follow Dean Acheson's lead. We don't want to have more Dean Acheson's running around. But the problem is the neoconservatives love Dean Acheson. Uh, the left never abandoned Dean Acheson. Uh, you know, of course, uh, John F. Kennedy is saying, come on back in, uh, Dean Acheson. We need you to talk about this Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you know, Kissinger uh, is another one of those figures that uh, the, the, the right has continually relied upon for advice. And he's another one of these Cold Warriors. So we're still looking at the world in terms of the Cold War. Here we are. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, f- over 50 years later, 60 years later. I mean, we're looking at 67 years later after after the Korean involvement, 67 years later, and this thing is still festering out there. It's this festering pustule sore, uh, an American foreign policy that was created by World War II and then the Cold War. And Americans might have to go. We've already fought and died uh, in Korea. And, and uh, because Kim Jong-un is becoming obnoxious, uh, it might happen again. And that's just that's, that's disappointing and uh, in so many ways depressing because we should be beyond this. Uh, but we've had the expansion of executive power because of the Korean War, and now we've got a foreign policy crisis. And uh, there's because of Dean Acheson and Harry Truman, uh, we're embroiled in this situation. So I think it's important for everyone to know where this, where this comes from. And maybe if we had the knowledge that this was stupid to begin with, it's still stupid. Uh, again, maybe we can just send Dennis Rodman back over there, play a little basketball, and Kim Jong-un will be satisfied with that. I don't know. Uh, but um, it's a very dangerous situation for the United States. And as is all the byproducts of the Cold War, whether you're looking at the Middle East, whether you're looking at Asia, whether you're looking at South America, all these things, all of these hot spots were created by uh, the Cold War, Dean Acheson, the Truman administration, the Dulles brothers, everything moving forward. It all goes back to those individuals. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.